Amen. be a particularly special one, and I'm glad for the sentiment that he shared with us regarding finding ourselves in the songs that we sing. I think that is a really important part of our songs of praise. It's very easy for us to sing, especially those familiar songs. They, uh, the words roll off our mouth, out of our mouths, and the, the, the tunes are easy in our minds, but how often it is that we fail to really grasp and contemplate, meditate on the beauty of the words and the messages that we sing together. And I'm grateful for reminders to do just that. This morning we're continuing our series of lessons that we've been working on for several weeks now as we are uh, considering the forefathers, and that is our spiritual forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Last week, when last we left our hero, last week we were talking about the fact that uh, Jacob was called the trickster. He was, uh, his literal name meant heel grabber, which is not something that we, you and I think of picturesquely as being a trickster, but it means that as uh, he would be one who would reach down and grab your heel as you were walking by and trip you up. That was his reputation, and as we saw, he lived up to his reputation. God always uses real people to tell us the stories we need to hear and learn the lessons that we need to learn. And we see in Jacob a flawed man, yet a flawed man whose life gives us many great lessons to learn from. Today, we're going to be looking at a lesson that uh, I originally entitled, The Trickster Gets Tricked. But since I've come, I've, uh, I've settled on the name, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's found in Genesis chapter 29. I'd invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 29 as we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 30 together. Just to set the stage for you, the, um, the situation is that um, Jacob is working for his uncle Laban, working in the fields, and uh, they are negotiating his payment as we open verse 15 of Genesis 29. Then Laban said to Jacob, should you work for me for nothing just because you're my relative, tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The older one was named Leah and the younger one, Rachel. Leah was weak on the eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and a beautiful appearance. So Jacob had fallen in love with Rachel. He said, I will serve you for seven years in exchange for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban replied, I'd rather give her to you than to another man, so stay with me. So Jacob worked for seven years to acquire Rachel. Oh, this is the best line in the story. But they only seemed like a few days to him because his love for her was so great. Verse 21, finally Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for the time of my service is up and I want to sleep with her. So Laban invited all the people of that place and prepared a feast. In the evening he brought his daughter Leah. Wait, wait. In the evening he brought his daughter Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. In the morning, Jacob discovered it was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what in the world have you done to me? Didn't I work for you in exchange for Rachel? Why have you tricked me? It is not our custom here, Laban replied, to give the younger daughter in marriage before the firstborn daughter. Complete my older daughter's bridal week, then I will give you the younger daughter also. 
in exchange for seven more years of work. Jacob did as Laban said. When Jacob completed Leah's bridal week, Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. And Jacob slept with Rachel as well. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And then he worked for Laban for seven more years. I remember how I learned this story the first time. And maybe, maybe you learned this story the first time this way too. Bear with me. Anybody remember these? This was the way I remembered this story, learned this story for the first time. And, and so we had this woman who uh, was beautiful, and her name was Rachel. And, and we had this man, and he was handsome. Doesn't really say that, but we always assume that. We always just believe that it probably was. And, 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 he, and he was in love with this beautiful woman. And there was a bad man named Laban who tricked our good hero and robbed his beautiful daughter of a wonderful relationship that they should have had. And there's always sheep. There's just always, you just always have random, random animals around. And this was the way I learned the story. And in this story, this was always such an enormously touching story. And honestly, from the time that I was a very young child, I grew up adoring this story. I thought, what an enormously romantic story. How beautiful the, the characters here are. What a wonderful thing it is. We got this, this man who's so in love with this woman, who's so in, in, just enraptured by her, that he says, I'll work for seven years. And that line. And those seven years felt like nothing because he was so in love with her. And I, from the time I was a child, I thought, I, I want to I wanna love like that. What an enormous picture. What a, what a beautiful depiction. I was always a romantic kid, I guess, and maybe that hasn't necessarily shaken itself loose from my soul. But the reality is that while all of those things are true, all of those things aren't the whole story. All of those things aren't the whole story at all. This story is very good, but this story is also very bad. And y'all, this story is really ugly. It really is the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I mean, why would, God, why would God put this story in this book this way? You know, when you and I look at this story, we think there's this beautiful storyline here that if we just took all that other stuff out of it, we could just focus on that. We could have this wonderful story of just a man and a woman and romance and love and, and, and all the things that come together for that. But you see, what we need to do is we need to tell the story the way God told this story. And we need to learn from this story the lessons that God wants us to learn from this story. It is a story of great romance. It's a story of, of love and dedication and hard work, and we ought to celebrate that. But you know what? It's also a story of polygamy. It's a story of misogyny. It's a, it's a story of, of objectifying women. It's a story about devaluing a human being to the point of property. It's about broken relationships. It's about mistrust. It's about cheating and stealing. This story is a mess. And this story is beautiful. This story is... is infuriating and this story is encouraging this story is gratifying and this story is demoralizing this story is everything that it is because it's a real true story in Thursday school we often will tell the story to the little kids and we'll we'll often preface it by opening up this Bible that's in this uh, in, in this box and we'll say 
Boys and girls, these stories are real. They come from the Bible, and they really happen. And you know what? Men and women, boys and girls, this story is real. And because it's real, it's a mess. It's a mess just like we are. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's talk about the good. Let's start there. And you know, there's a, there's a lot of good in this story. And this story reveals some good that we can apply. There are some lessons here that we need to listen to. There are some things that we need to emulate in our own life as we look for the good in this story. And I would suggest to you that the good takes place in, in two phases, two aspects that work together with one another. And they are a good attitude and a good action. A good attitude and a good action. And may I just say from the front end that both are necessary. That both are necessary. Anytime we find ourselves in a circumstance of life, we need to make sure that we're recognizing a good attitude that is correlating with a good action. And those two coming together will be the most successful formula that we can find. That's exactly what we see here. First of all, we have this good attitude. We have this man who had this enormous love for this woman, and his attitude was so good. His attitude was so proper that he was willing to work for seven long years and not find it to be oppressive. Think of the attitude that would take to, to be able to, to do that. Think of the kind of mindset you would have to have to be able to look that far into the future. It's hard for me to anticipate something seven days in advance. It's hard for me to work hard for something that's seven hours in advance. And here he was able to willing to work for something that was seven years in advance. And through it all, to keep such a positive attitude that even when it was seven years, it said it felt like just moments. Ladies, honestly, wouldn't you love a man like that? I, I mean, honestly, most wives would be, if, if you're totally honest, a lot of wives would say, you know, I, I'd love for my husband to look at me the way he looks at a cheeseburger, let alone be able to work seven years to have this kind of dedication and devotion. This, was, this is truly a romantic thing, and I would suggest to you that this is at least one half of the good, at least one half of the good of this story, because this shows something about how good a relationship can really be. But you know what? To that good attitude, he married no pun intended, but it works perfectly. He married with that good action. He had good attitude, and he brought alongside that good action. A good attitude that does no work accomplishes nothing. A good work that has a bad attitude will never accomplish all that it could. But when good action meets good attitude, we find ourselves really being able to do something amazing. I want you to think for just a second. I want you to think where you were seven years ago. I want you to think what your life was like seven years ago. I, I started to do this activity in my own head, and I got to thinking about the fact that I was brand new here, just starting out. I was uh, in those empty nest years. Quiet, peaceful existence with nothing to do. Life was much different seven years ago. Kids away in college, big house to myself. A lot changes in seven years. Now, the reason I bring that up is because I want you to think about something. I want you to think where you were seven years ago, and I want you to think that you were given a task, a, a, an obligation, a responsibility, something to accomplish. And from that point in your mind where you were until right now, that has been the singular focus of your life for seven long years. What actions would you be taking to accomplish that goal? Well, you see, when it comes to our be a hero of our story. He knew exactly what the actions were to accomplish that goal. 
Because what we have here is a situation of a man who was willing to, able to, and desirous of working hard for what he believed in, for what he wanted, for what he was after. He was a man who was truly ready to just, just get down and grind. Just keep going. What do you do in situations where life gets hard and things are unfair and things are not the way they are supposed to be? The, the example that we have here is, a, well, you work hard. You, you put your shoulder to it and you keep pushing forward. And that's exactly what he did. For seven years, he continued to grind. He continued to work. He didn't complain. He didn't fuss. He didn't sit around and talk about how unfair this was and how this wasn't the way it was supposed to be and this isn't the way other people have to do it and these aren't, these aren't proper circumstances and I shouldn't have to be dealing with any of this. He just simply said, this is the work before me. He kept his head down and his chin up and he went forward with it. I wonder how many circumstances in life I would find much more satisfying, fulfilling, and ultimately beneficial if I could have that kind of good attitude married to that kind of good work. This story has a lot of good in it. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 comes to mind. Paul writes to the early church and he says, We must not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing the right thing, even if it means you do it over and over and over and over and despite the hardship around you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul again writing to the early church, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable. Here it is. Excel in the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. You know, the fact is that sometimes gratification is delayed. Sometimes we work hard now for something down the road. And the Bible reminds us that that is an important skill for us to develop. Psalm 126 and verse 5, the psalmist says, Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. It's not today that the farmer puts the seed in the ground and harvests. It's today that he puts it in the ground and it's later that he harvests. And in that intervening time, he continues to work and hope and have a good attitude and put his shoulder into the work. So that's something I think we need to take from this. Jacob spent 14 years promised seven, ended up working 14, to accomplish his goal. And there is good in this story. And God is in the good. But secondly, there's bad in this story. And surprisingly, God works even in the bad. The first is that we have this deceiver who is himself deceived. There's a great irony to this, if you just stop and think about it. This would make great literature, this would make a great movie plot, and we would look at this and say, ha ha ha, isn't that neat, that irony there? But this happened in real life. A man whose life had been constantly um, noted with trickery is himself tricked in a grand way. And it shouldn't really surprise us. This honestly is not new for Laban. We didn't talk about this a couple weeks ago, but when we uh, had the lesson about that first introduced us to Laban, it was when his sister Rebecca was being given in marriage to Isaac. And you'll remember that there were camels loaded with treasure. Laban really didn't have any interest in this whole story until he saw these treasure camels start getting unloaded. And suddenly he said, wait, 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 don't, don't, don't take her yet. What was he saying? If we can get this much of a treasure out of one day, let's hold her ten days and see how much treasure we can get. The only interest he had in that whole story was about treasure. He already showed who he was at the very beginning. He proved himself to be greedy and conniving, and here he lives up to the reputation that we've already been hinting at 
way back in that story. So it's not surprising, at least it shouldn't be surprising, that this is the kind of thing that Laban does. Laban tricked, Laban tricked Jacob into marrying the woman he did not want to marry. But that wasn't the only trickery that he did. Because after that, he continued to manipulate and double-cross and cheat Jacob for years and years and years to come. We'll read in just a moment, but later in Genesis 31, he talks about how um, Laban has continually changed his wages. Ten different times. Ten different times. In verse 7 of chapter 31, it says, He, Laban, has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. He goes on to explain that the way he did his wages was, he says, Okay, okay, I'll tell you what, Jacob. Every time the sheep have babies, if, if, they, if they come out speckled, you can have the speckled ones. By the way, very rare. There wasn't many of those. What he's saying, basically, is you can have these really small number of outliers. And guess what God did? God said, oh yeah? Watch this. And all of a sudden, everything was a speckled sheep. And Laban said, wait, 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 no, 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 no. No, I didn't mean speckled, I meant striped. And so what you're going to get is you're going to get the striped. So guess what next year happened? All striped. And you continue to see God continue to work in this situation. But what it's showing is that Laban is tricking and cheating and double-crossing and greedily trying to do everything he can to gain on the expense of his son-in-law. Everything about these two was in conflict. Everything about these two was just waiting to boil over at any point in time. And finally it did. Finally it did boil over. And Jacob had enough, he couldn't handle it anymore, and he decided in the dark of the night that he was getting out of there. And so he gathered up quietly all of his family and all of his animals and everything that was his, and he snuck away into the night. Laban, realizing that they were gone, chased him down. Jacob, seeing him come and assumes, we're about to have problems. Genesis 31, Jacob says this, I have been with you for the past 20 years. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flock. If animals, tore, if animals were torn by wild beasts, I never brought them to you. I absorbed the loss myself. You made me pay for every missing animal, whether it was taken by day or by night. I was consumed by scorching heat during the day and piercing cold at night. I went without sleep. This was my lot for 20 years in your house. I worked like a slave for you. 14 years for your two daughters, and six more years for the flocks. And even then you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the one whom Isaac fears, had not been with me, you certainly would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw how I was oppressed and how I worked hard, and he rebuked you. At this point, you can almost see Jacob backing up like, there's my part, now are we going to go at it? Laban, Laban replied to Jacob, Jacob, these women are my daughters. These children are my grandchildren. These flocks are of my flocks. This belongs to me, but how could I harm these daughters of mine? How could I harm the children whom they have given birth? So now come, let's make a formal agreement, you and I, and let's make peace. Isn't that fantastic? 20 years of conflict, 20 years of bad, 20 years of banging heads, 20 years of cheating and stealing and greed. And at the end, God works some amazing work to bring about peace in the most unlikely of circumstances and situations. 
It, there's probably not a day that goes by that I'm not reminded of Romans 8.28. In fact, in our house, we often will say of a situation that's a hardship, a challenge, something unexpected, a bill comes in that we don't know about, or there's something that we're worried about. And we'll say to each other, you know, it's going to be cool to see how God 8.28's this. It's going to be cool to see how God 8.28's this. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. God's going to work it together for good. He's going to figure out a way to bring something out of this. 20 years of hardship, 20 years of conflict, 20 years of hating each other, cheating each other, come together in this beautiful picture that they finally make peace. You see, even in the bad, God shows up. Even in the bad, God shows up. And he ate 28's that junk and brings good even in to the really bad situations. Finally, the third, the ugly. We've got the good, we've got the bad, and now we've got the ugly. And this is probably the most troubling part of this story, probably the hardest part of this passage. And that's the way that both Jacob and Laban treat, well, both their daughter, both of his daughters, but especially Leah. Especially Leah. What's the very first thing that we hear about Leah? Before we know anything else about her, we know she's the older daughter and we know that she is weak on the eyes. Unfortunate reality is that's an expression that means she was not much to look at. Can you imagine that being the very first thing that all of history knows about you as a person? Can you picture how objectifying that is to women that they have been reduced in this time period to nothing more than how old are they and how pretty are they? May I say, how have we evolved as a society? Do we still place importance on women by how old they are and how pretty they are? Do we still find ourselves objectifying women in some ways that they did then? Not only was she objectified, not only is she nothing more than just the, uh, the order, birth order and that she's not pretty, but her dad pawns her off on an unwilling man. How incredibly heartbreaking this must be for her. She doesn't have a man who loves her, who wants her, who worked for seven years for her. She doesn't have a man who chose her. She has a man that she was given to that he doesn't want and dad doesn't want her around. That's the world that Leah is experiencing. It's ugly. Even at the very conclusion of this story, when we want to wrap it all up in a nice, neat bow, we want to make it all good and okay, see, happily ever after. It doesn't say that. What are the final words in this passage that we read? Jacob loved Rachel. She was the subject of favoritism, the victim of favoritism in her childhood, in her own home, in her marriage, with her own husband. And she was continually stuck with broken men who did not give her the value that God gave her. What's interesting about this is how God shines even into this. How God shines even into this ugliness. Because in a home where she wasn't given the same privileges and love, in a, in a marriage where she wasn't given the same privileges and a love, we find her engaging in a deep relationship with God that is dependent and beautiful and lovely. And one of the great lessons we can learn is the story of Leah and her devotion to God. You know, in those days, names of children meant so much. 
Names of children meant so much. You named your child based on what you were experiencing in that moment. Knowing that, let's look at some of the names of Leah's children. Leah had a son named Reuben, which means God's gift of a son. A son named Simeon, God has heard me. A son named Levi, I have been joined, I've been uh, connected with. A son named Judah, my praise. A son named Issachar, the repayment for my hurt. A son named Zebulun, I am exalted. What is she saying in these names? She's saying, I have nothing. I have a marriage that's loveless. I've I've been given up by a father who didn't care enough for me to actually look out for my well-being. But I have found a God who fulfills all this. I have found a God who loves me. I have found a God who blesses me. I have found a God who fulfills me. And in her life, we have this beautiful picture of a woman in the midst of the darkest, terrible situation who reaches out in her desperation and finds God and finds Him satisfied. But it's not just one-sided. It's not just her reaching up to God, but it's also God reaching down to her. Jacob may have devalued her and Laban may have cast her aside, but out of her legacy, all nations would be blessed. It's out of her children that would come the line of priests that would continually draw God's people to God. The Levites came from the son Levi. It was from her children that there would be this one faithful tribe that despite the fact that all the other tribes went away, the tribe of Judah remained faithful at least longer than any other tribe did. It was out of her children, not not the favorite daughter, not the favorite wife, but it's out of Leah's children that one day in the city of Bethlehem there would be born a baby to a young unmarried girl It was from her family. You see, God even shines into the ugly. Just as he shines into the bad. Just as he shines into the good. So, in her story, we find hope, and we find peace, and we find an admonition to rely on God. When she had nothing else, he was her all. When you and I have nothing else, he is our all. Let's conclude with this. Leah turned to God in hope when all seemed lost. And from Leah came the one who was hope to a lost world. Jesus Christ himself. Our story was the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our conclusion is a reversal of those. The ugly. The ugly is pretty simple. You and I have a sin problem. The ugly is pretty simple. You and I have a sin problem, and that sin problem keeps us from God. We don't have the relationship, the connection with God that that we desire that God created us to have because we have a sin problem that puts up a barrier. And that's the bad news. 
the fact that we do have a sin problem and that barrier that's between us does not allow us the connectedness, the intimacy, the, the relationship with God that ultimately will result in us having a home with him forever. That's bad news. But it concludes with good news. Because from Leah comes one who paid the price for that sin. The one who in his own blood broke down that wall of division and allowed us the cleansing and the forgiveness that takes place when we make him the Lord of our life. We name Jesus Christ as our Savior. We join him in the waters of baptism. We rise out of there a new creation. And when we do that, when we do that, we live in the good. You see, this is a story of the good, the bad, and the ugly. But for us, it's a reminder of the ugly and the bad the ultimate good. This morning, we want you to know that we understand that sin problem because we share it. But we also understand that salvation opportunity because we've enjoyed it. And we continue to enjoy it now. And if there's anything at all that we can do in helping you with your journey with Jesus, we want you to know that we're ready to do so. As we take not only the lessons of this story, but the opportunity to invite you to come to know Jesus more fully. If we can help in any of those ways, we want you to know our leaders meet in the back of this room. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, and be of help to you in any way we can. Let that be known.